Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Morning, everybody. Great to see you, and uh, really so glad you could come and share, Clive. Appreciate that. And, um, you know, we only do really what we do because of what God has done for us and because of how we encounter his love and his presence and the natural overflow of that comes out from this place. You know, you've heard us say a lot many times in this place. We, we, are, uh, we are not just a church for the church. We are people who God has called to impact and bless communities. And as Paul said earlier, be scattered servants. So we're in the middle of a series called The Big Story of the Bible. If you can put the first slide up, that'd be great. We're trying to get a sense of the overall narrative sweep of this book. Um, it's an incredibly ambitious series, um, but it's also very important that we understand the timeline of the different sections. Um, you know, we've said this kind of overarching sort of uh, mission statement here is uh, that we think the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, and that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Um, we've we've had, had three out of the six uh, episodes in this series. This is number four. We took a little break last week. If this was a drama on TV, uh, what would happen now is that you'd have some dramatic music come up and you'd have a sort of drum beat and it would go and it would go previously in our series and then you would get this kind of act one was creation and we talked about how God created the world. We talked about how starting with chaos, he systematically planned and designed and spoke this world into being and how as the, um, at the pinnacle of creation, he creates humans, not as playthings to the gods, not as an afterthought, but as his royal representative to be his image, to reflect his nature and character uh, on the earth. And then you get the second episode and you say that the next bit was the fall and faced with the choice as to how we would go about this incredible life. Humans could either choose to do it God's way or they could choose to do it their way. If they choose partnership with God, they need to operate within his boundaries. Um, choosing not to do it in partnership with God, of course, means that we turn our back on God's boundaries and do it our own way. And sadly, as you know, that's what Adam and Eve chose to do by eating the fruit of the tree. Um, and Paul talked about that and how that brings us as humans into conflict. Um, and then we talked about the next part, God's the Act 3, um, Israel of the Covenant. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to recap all of this, but you can check this out. It's all online. Um, and Will did an amazing job of taking us through pretty much the whole of the Old Testament, you know, uh, which is no easy task, I tell you, but how God um, establishes a covenant first with Abraham and then with the other patriarchs and how he keeps going, keeps going. You know, and over nearly 2,000 years, the story of Israel plays out and the story of God's, rela God's relationship with his people, how it goes through ups and downs and all these different um, bits of the narrative and how there's this cycle of this kind of pattern where God, where the people of God kind of make good choices and renew their promises and return to him and that results in his presence coming near and then they kind of get a little bit that his blessing rests on them and only the next generation then decides that's not what they want to do and they turn away from God and they're in trouble over it all over again. And as Will said, the Old Testament is a tragedy. Its characters are really dysfunctional and Israel fails to live up to its calling. Um, and these people are not there to give us examples of how to live. We don't look at the Old Testament and say, oh, that's how to do it. We look at the Old Testament and go, oh, those people have messed it up just like us. And hopefully you can relate to this. Hopefully there's a resonance for you. Because for some of us, our life is a little bit like the journey of the Israelites in the Old Testament. For some of us, it might feel like we lurch from one crisis to another. And that our relationship with God is very much up and down. Can anyone identify with this? Or is it just me? 
Okay, We might worry that we can't feel his presence. We might be concerned that he's abandoned us completely. But as we saw in the Bible, he didn't then and he doesn't now. He never has. Throughout the Old Testament, despite it being a tragedy, um, it's not the end. It's part of a bigger story, a story that leads us, as we said, to Jesus. And that takes us on to Act 4, which we start today, but actually which we don't finish. We don't finish Act 4 because we're in Act 4 now. And so we'll pick up next week and we'll continue Act 4. And Act 4 starts with Jesus. And if you've got a Bible with you, we are going to read from the book of the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got a Bible or you've got your Bible on the phone, we're going to mostly read through the first chapter of the book of Mark in the New Testament. And what I want to do is to show you about how Jesus, the way Mark tells the story, the way Mark describes this Gospel, I want to show you how Jesus who Jesus claims to be and who Mark claims that he is and how he really does complete the story that we are learning in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. So I'm going to read through this. It's fairly, it, there's about 30 verses. We're going to go on a whistle stop read through. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore a cloak of, uh, sorry, wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Verse 12, at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked by side the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Are you keeping up? It's a pretty fast-moving story the way Mark tells it, isn't it? Verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teacher of the law. And just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. 
Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to James and John, sorry, with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up and the fever left her and she began to wait on them. And that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. I'm going to pause there. That's a fairly whistle-stop story. You know, each of the Gospels has its own viewpoint on Jesus. It has its own particular way that it's writing. But Mark's is particularly special, partly because it was the first one to be written. And partly because what Mark is aiming to do is just really succinctly capture the story of the life of Jesus in a way that it could be read aloud to an audience. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. Somebody else said this, not me, but I quite like it. They said, it reads like an action movie written by somebody with ADHD. It uses the word immediately, or at once, or just then. It uses that, that word 41 times. Okay? It spares tons of details that you can read about in other Gospels. There's no genealogies. There's no life, you know, um, you know, list of the stories of who comes before Jesus. There's none of that. Uh, it, it's, there's nothing about Jesus' birth at all. It's just straight in there with the opening. This is the story. And I love that. I love the first slide. Let's look at, I'm going to, we're going to kind of chunk through this a little bit and we're going to try and understand and just pick up some ideas about what it is that Mark's really doing here, why he's doing it this way. Because opening like this, the beginning of the good news, what does that remind you of? It reminds you of Genesis. Yeah, in the beginning. We looked at that a month ago. When Mark is announcing, what Mark is doing is he's announcing, hey guys, we are starting again. Now, Paul said there were 400 years silence. 400 years. Can you just imagine that? Now, if I'm lucky, I might live 70 years, maybe 80. If I go, maybe if uh, one of Clive's places looks after me, I might make another 10. But, um, but, you know, 400 years, that's a number of generations. That's a number of generations of me passing down. Do you know, God is going to come. I do, we do have hope. We do have hope for a saviour. You know, I know that our history is really bleak, but actually we do still hope for God. That's 400 years of silence. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and 30, 40 years later, after Jesus has gone, um, the, the stories that his followers have been telling, Mark starts to write it down. And the first thing he does as he writes it down, is says, hey, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the story of God, this is good news. And Mark is deliberately echoing Israel's story, Israel's own story, to show how it all fits together. And it's essential for us to understand that. That's why we're spending so much time this year getting to grips with the Old Testament. Because if you remember, the Old Test- in the Old Testament, every story whispers his name. Every story in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And that's why we need to understand it. So anyway, Mark is writing to the Jewish listener and every word he chooses is significant. So verse two, he says, as it is written, Mark says, in, the prophet, in Isaiah the prophet, Okay, so he's quoting the Old Testament now. I will send a messenger ahead of you. There is a prediction there that somebody will come ahead of Jesus and they will be the one who comes to announce him. And then Mark starts to describe this guy, John the Baptist, who's at best an odd guy with interesting fashion sense and unconventional tastes. I think now would be all the rage, wouldn't it? Retro fashions and all that, camel's hair. Um, That's what the kids are into now, isn't it? All this retro kind of stuff. Um, Mark makes two significant points in his description of John the Baptist. Firstly, where does John appear from? He says, John the Baptist appears from where? Come on, I'm going to make you do some work. You've got to look at your Bibles. You've got to wake up a bit. Come on. Thank you. The wilderness. He comes from the desert. The wilderness. 
Well, where's that in Egypt's story? Oh, and sorry, in Israel's story. 40 years in the wilderness. So again, he's echoing. Where does he go next? Where does John come to from the wilderness? He comes to the Jordan River. Again, both of these places really significant. You know, if you've been reading the Bible with us on the, on the, on the Bible plan that we're working through, you will have just read through the book of Numbers in the last couple of weeks, and you will have read about the story of God's people, Israel, um, wandering through the desert and meeting with God there and him guiding them and teaching them. That 40 years is very much part of the Jewish story. And Mark is identifying John the Baptist with this part of the story. And similarly, the Jordan River, where they crossed. We talked about this last year. We talked about this story where they crossed over the Jordan um, and into the promised land. And so John has come from the wilderness and he's come to the river. And what's he doing? What is John doing? He is baptizing people. What is baptizing? It's a symbol of new life. All, we've only had eight verses. And Jesus hasn't even appeared. And yet Mark is setting up this story going, there's a new beginning here, guys. There's something new coming. And this is so much part of your story. And the build-up's amazing. John says, after me, he says, John says, I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. I've come to announce him. After me is coming one who's so much more powerful than me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, this guy's going to come. He's going to be amazing. It's like drum roll, curtains, and the curtain goes back, and it says, so Jesus comes from Nazareth. And we think that's really spectacular, but basically he might have said, if he was here now, he might have said, so John Smith comes from East Grinstead. I mean, that's, as, you know, Jesus was a really popular name, and Nazareth was a really weird place. And, uh, you know, Jesus comes, and who, who is this guy? What's this all about? What's, what, who is this guy? And Jesus comes to John, and in another version, you read about how they have this tussle about, well, you should baptize me. No, you should baptize me. No, you should baptize me. The real question is, why is it that Jesus needs baptizing at all? Because he's not repenting from anything. He's not turning from sin. Why is Jesus being baptized at the start of his ministry? And the answer, I believe, is that by being baptized in the Jordan River, Jesus is identifying himself with the entire nation of Israel who had literally walked through this river on their way to the promised land some various few hundred years beforehand. This place is a symbolic part of Israel fulfilling their purposes. Their purpose as a nation was to become a channel of God's peace and blessing and salvation to the world. And Jesus is saying, that's the mission that God has for you and that's the mission I'm taking on. That's the mission I'm taking on. You know, you might be wondering why God was so patient with Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Why didn't he just bring Jesus after the Tower of Babel? Or why didn't he see that you know, Abraham and those guys had messed it up, so why didn't he just bring Jesus then? Or after David, what, what did he wait for? And the reason is because God's plan is to do this through people. God's plan to save the world is to do it through people. He wants to work with people. He wants to do it with people. That was always his plan for the Jews, and that's always the plan that Jesus took on. Uh, there's a guy, a very clever man called Tom Wright, a New Testament scholar, who says this. Jesus believed that the creator God had purpose from the beginning to address and deal with the problems within his creation through Israel. Israel was not to be an example of a nation under God. Israel was to be the means through which the world would be saved. And that this would be accomplished through Israel's history, reaching a great moment of climax in which Israel herself would be saved from her enemies and through which the creator God, the covenant God, would at last bring his love and justice and his mercy and truth to bear upon the whole world, bringing renewal and healing to all creation. 
Now, I've just realised that I produced some notes for you this morning and I've left them on the photocopier. Would some of you guys at the back be up for just grabbing the notes from the photocopier for me? Um, it, it's, it's not that the notes are particularly important, but the questions at the bottom of those sheets are. And perhaps you guys could just be um, distributing those while I am. Um... It's a good job we're really slick around here, isn't it? <laughs> See, God has always wanted to use people in his rescue plan. He's always chosen people to be part of this. And Jesus was here stepping up to the plate. He's saying it hasn't worked out with Israel, so now I'm here. And I'm taking on the same mission plan. It's a really significant moment. And it says that as Jesus was being baptized, it says, I don't know if that's what it was really like, but it's a nice picture. Um, It just says Jesus was coming out of the water and he saw heaven being torn open. And this language of tearing open is really powerful, isn't it? You know, the Old Testament's used language like that before. It's used it in Ezekiel. It says, the heavens were opened and I saw the vision of God. He uses it in Isaiah 64 when Isaiah actually prays, oh, that you would rend the heavens, you would tear open the heavens and come down. There is this idea of the barrier between God and us being torn apart. And it says that when Jesus' baptism, when Jesus was baptized um, and his ministry was inaugurated and so It's sort of saying God is about to do something. Hey, I'm tearing the heavens open. That's the language that Mark is using. This is a symbolic moment. And the next part, verse 12, it says, from there, uh, Jesus was led into the wilderness where he went through his own wilderness experience. We've talked about John and his wilderness experience, but the same thing happened for Jesus. And again, from other accounts, we know that Jesus faced temptations in the wilderness. Mark doesn't give us the details. But we do know from other accounts that, you know, similarly to Adam and Eve, Jesus presented with some options. So Jesus, this is your mission. This is your call. Are you going to do it God's way or are you going to do it your way? Just the same as Adam and Eve. That temptation was there and Jesus resisted it. Jesus, it's unlike Adam and Eve. Jesus wasn't surrounded by the beauty of the garden and fellowship and food and peaceful animals and God walking with him in the cool evening breeze. No, Jesus' temptation happened when he was surrounded by wild animals and danger and emptiness and barrenness. And that's kind of representative of where things had got to with the world. You know, the fallen and broken and disintegrated world that Jesus came into. And Jesus is tempted maybe to take his things into his own hands and to do this, you know, his way, but he resists. He resists and he reverses what Adam and Eve did. He resists the temptation to do it his way and Instead, he comes out and he starts to preach. And here's where it really, he makes his massive announcement. He says, it's time. Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come. It's come near. Repent and believe the good news. And the original word for good, word for good news or gospel, the Greek word is eugagalian, which in the ancient Roman world means the kind of announcement that people would go around and make after a great victory had been won. So there's been a battle, the king has won, and everyone makes this proclamation and goes around saying, the the, the victory has been won, the battle has been won, this is really good news. That's what it means when it says gospel or good news. That's what it's talking about. And uh, I don't really have time to look into it, but there's in Isaiah chapter 52, there's a quote which I think Mark is echoing, where he talks about beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings and proclaim to salvation, and say to Zion, your God reigns. And when Isaiah wrote those words to Israel 600 years beforehand, they were in exile, they'd lost hope, they'd given up. 
They didn't even think that God was there anymore for them. And he describes them, he says, no, it's going to be okay. Something's going to come. And he describes them waiting on the city walls for the guy who's going to come and say, there is good news. It's going to be okay. And so when when Mark describes how Jesus is saying this, he's kind of saying Jesus is preaching the gospel. And he says, I have come to bring about the calling that was on Israel. Okay, all of that stuff that we've read in the Old Testament, all of that tragedy, everything that's gone wrong, Jesus says, I am here to reverse that. I have come to start again. I am going to declare now again that God reigns and that God rules. And this is good news. The good news that, they were, that Isaiah was talking about is coming about now. So Jesus comes out of the Jordan River. He comes out of the wilderness and the temptation experience. He comes out of this nowhere place up in Galilee and he declares there's a new king in town. There's a new king in town. Your God reigns. Israel, the time has come. The reign and rule of God is here. What does that mean practically for people? What does it mean that there's good news, that there's a rule and reign of God here? What does the gospel mean? Well, it means peace. It means freedom from oppression. It means freedom from injustice. In the ancient world, what is it that kings do? First and foremost, a king's job is to conquer their enemies so that the people in their land can live in peace. So kings bring salvation. They bring freedom from the oppressor. They bring delivery from slavery to freedom. If you look right back in Exodus 15, we've read this story recently as well. The Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. God has miraculously rescued them from Egypt. And they sing this song. They sing, I will sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. The horse and the driver have been hurled into the sea. That's Pharaoh and the Egyptians he's talking about. The Lord has become my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. And then the last line of that verse is, the Lord reigns forever and ever and ever. And so again, even going right back to Israel's history, Jesus is saying God reigns And what that looks like is freedom from your enemies. And Jesus says, I have come to crush the enemy. And the people who are listening to Jesus don't know really what that means. They think it's the Roman occupying force he's talking about. Or maybe they think it's the prostitutes or the sinners or the tax collectors. Or maybe they think it's the religious leaders. And actually, Jesus isn't talking about any of them. He's talking about evil in the world. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the enemy. And that's who Jesus comes to confront And so as soon as Jesus gets up in the synagogue and starts to preach, there's a man who starts calling out to him, a man who's got an evil spirit. And it says the evil spirit's called out. And you notice evil spirits in the plural because very deliberately they said, the man doesn't say, what do you want with me? The the spirit says, what do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus' answer is, yes, I've come to destroy you. It's like something out of Star Wars, isn't it? What have you come to do, Jesus? I've come to destroy you. No, not us. Yes, you. Be out. I mean, it, it, it does read a little bit like that, doesn't it? Or is it just me? I'm not really into Star Wars and all that, but that's what it makes me think of anyway. Jesus' mission was to destroy the works of the evil one. You know, Colossians 1, Paul says, Jesus rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's what God did. In whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And this account, pretty much the rest of the next few chapters, 
is about Mark describing how the demons will overrule and dominate people, how illnesses can stop people from being all they can be, how nature is always threatening to destroy with storms and all of that, and how humans oppress other humans. And yet when Jesus brings the kingdom of God and announces the rule and reign, he comes and he challenges every other claim to power. Everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps them from their original design, everything that stops them or us being who they were meant to be, Jesus comes and counters against that. And he challenges it. And he says, I've come to rule as the true image of God, the true human, the true representative. You know, we talked last month about how God created humans to work in the garden, to bring order from chaos, to exercise his authority in the world, you know, and to rule over and to rule in a good way. And that's what Jesus does. This is a new Exodus story. The inbreaking kingdom of God brings rule and the reign of God in the life of the world and releases those who've been held in captive to bondage. And that's what's going on here. We've sung about it this morning, haven't we? We sang that song, you know, I ran out of that grave. We're saying, You are the one who saves. Jesus is coming with an incredible message, a message of salvation. There's a quote there from Leslie Newbegin, but it's on your sheet and I don't have time to look at it now. But I just want to say this. Jesus is still enacting that mission today, here and now. He is enacting his kingdom today. And as I said at the start, you know, we're into Act 4 and we're staying in Act 4 because Act 5 is the very end of things. And while we can read about that and we can look forward to it and we can get glimpses of it, actually Jesus and the church and us are all in this act of the drama. And Paul, uh, Joe next week and Paul the week after are going to talk a little bit more about that, about Pentecost, about what happened when the Holy Spirit came, about the church and how it was established. But I want to say this, if you're sick or if you're troubled, or if you are struggling in some way, or in some regard you need saving today, then Jesus is here to do that. You know, as Paul said, we've heard stories of the dramatic and the miraculous. We know what God is about, and we would love to pray for you. I just have a couple more things to say, and that's this. Remember the opening line of Mark's Gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And narratively, the way that Mark tells this story is absolute genius. Because what happens is we're the reader, and so right at the start, Mark tells us, the reader, this is who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And as we read through, we're the only people that know that. Apart from Jesus, and apart from the demons. Nobody else in the story of Mark has figured out who Jesus is. And whenever anybody does figure it out, what does he do? He says, what? Shout out. He tells them to be quiet. There's a whole idea about this. It's called the secret Messiah. The secret Messiah idea. You see, although we know the characters, the characters in this story are ignorant. The disciples don't know, the crowds don't know, the authorities don't know. Sometimes as we read, we wish they knew because it would make things a whole lot easier. But there's this dramatic tension going on and it's really interesting because it means that the climate that Jesus is operating in is a climate of unbelief and unawareness. Nobody there knows really who Jesus is. 
And it's only after the event that just Jesus' disciples worked it out. And so as Mark's telling the story back again, he's able to say, let me tell you the account of this guy, Jesus, and who he really was. And that leads us to a question, really, which is, who is the Jesus that you believe in? Which Jesus do we really believe in? And I imagine that there are people here today who have been asking ourselves that question for years. Who, who really is Jesus? And there are certainly people who you live with or work with or study with or hang out with who would say that they don't believe in the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. And you might think Jesus is simply a really good teacher or a really good life coach or a model example of what a human should be, like a good man, a selfless man, a worthy man, qualities that we could aspire to. And whilst all that's very positive, and it probably is true, that isn't who Jesus said he was. And if we choose not to believe it, the the easy thing we can end up doing is containing Jesus or managing him. There's an old kid's song that goes, have we made our God too small, too small? Have we made our God too small? Have we put him in a box? And sometimes it's easy, isn't it, to say say of Jesus, oh yeah, he's just that really good guy that we can read about in the Bible. I'm sure he was a good man, a good ethical figure, a gifted teacher. But if we say that, then what we're not saying is Jesus is the one who announced the kingdom of God. He is the one who said, the story of God that that you know, the story of God in which humanity reaches its fulfillment, that's gonna happen in me. Jesus' claim about himself was, I'm the one who brings about the renewal of the whole world. I'm the guy. And so his challenge then was repent, from the way that you think that you're bringing about the renewal of the whole world. It's not about you, it's about me. Follow me. They're really, really bold claims he made about himself. Really bold. And there's this sort of turning point in the book of Mark, in chapter eight, where Jesus asks his followers, and they're on this discussion, and he says, "Um, what do people say I am? And they say, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. And some say you're a prophet. And Jesus says to them, he says, and who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. I know who you are. And Jesus warned them. He says, you're right, but don't tell anyone. You're right, but don't tell anyone. Because you don't get it yet. And it goes on in Mark 8 to say that he teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And he's going to be killed. And all this, he starts to talk about the cross and what's going to happen on the cross. And Jesus says, Peter takes him aside and starts rebuking him. You know, Peter, who's frankly a little bit like me, you know, probably, probably says more than he should, probably doesn't think before he speaks. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're not going to get killed. You're not going to die in three days in Jerusalem. None of that. You're going to lead a revolution and we're going to defeat the Romans. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, you've so got it wrong. In fact, what he says is, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. At this point, Peter, you are the mouthpiece of evil talking because you haven't got it. Even Peter, who's been following Jesus day to day, hanging out, doesn't get it. And that's a real turning point in the book of Mark. Because the first eight chapters are all about the kingdom and all about the miracles and all about healings. And after chapter eight, there's only three more miracles in the book. And the rest of it is Jesus talking about the cross. It pretty much spends half the book talking about what's going to happen on the cross. 
and talking about this. And that's really important for us to know as we finish because Jesus says, actually, the main thing that you need to know about me is that I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. This is the way that I'm going to save the world. And if anybody wants to follow me, you're going to have to go to your cross too. See, Jesus could only be rightly understood and rightly followed as the son of man who will surrender his power in order to suffer and die. That's the only way you can know Jesus, to surrender your own power and your own life and effectively die to ourselves. And that's the dramatic tension that goes on in Mark's book. And right at the end, there's a verse where Jesus is literally on the cross and there's this Roman centurion who stands watching it all go on. And it says, as Jesus breathed his last, this centurion declares, surely this man was the son of God. And guess what? Nobody tells him to be quiet. Because Mark is saying, you know, that's it. He's got it. This man's got it. This man has got it. And so this guy isn't rebuked. He's not told to keep quiet. Mark just leaves it there for everyone to see that this is who Jesus is. And if we don't, and, if, and, and until we get to the cross, we don't get the full picture of who Jesus is. If we only know Jesus as a teacher or a spiritualist or a humble peasant, you know, Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Jesus and Nelson Mandela, they're all good people, right? If that's how we think of Jesus, then we've, we're missing out. We're really missing out. We really miss that. That's not who he said he was. He said, I'm the one who's come to take away death. I'm the one who's come to crush the enemy. I'm the one who's come to conquer sin. And in my death and in my subsequent resurrection, that's what's going on. I am the pinnacle of the Bible. I'm so out of time. Why don't we stand up and why don't we pray? Paul, why don't you come?